0: When the ideas of the Protestant Reformation began to circulate and gain popularity in France in the 1530s and 1540s, the French who embraced those ideas were confronted with a problem, a very serious problem, the problem of persecution. Church historian Philip Schaff described the situation this way He said, A great practical difficulty presented itself to the Protestants in France where they were in constant danger of persecution. They could not emigrate in mass nor live in peace at home without concealing or denying their convictions. A large number were Protestants at heart, but outwardly conformed to the Roman church. They excused their conduct by the example of Nicodemus, the Jewish rabbi who came to Jesus by night. Now at this time, John Calvin, who was himself French, who had left France as a young single man in the mid-1530s, uh, from that, uh, and from that point on in the mid-1530s, he always kept an eye on the Reformation in his native land. And the conduct of these who had embraced Reformation principles in their hearts but refused to verbally confess them was quite distressing for Calvin. And he directed some of his writings to these secret believers to stir them up to an open confession, an open profession of the gospel. And his efforts were not always well received by the French. Their attitude uh, toward him was basically that he was like a captain who ordered his soldiers into harm's way while he himself was back out of the line of fire. And they felt basically that if Calvin was so brave... Why doesn't he just come to France? He had left as a young man when he was single and didn't have really any property to speak of, no family, and he was just gone. And so the the French were like, why are you telling us to be so brave if you're over there in Geneva where you're safe? And Philip Chaff summarized Calvin's reply in this way, if you compare me with a captain, you should not blame me for doing my duty. The question is not what I would do in your condition... But what is our present duty, yours and mine? If my life differs from my teaching, then woe to me. God is my witness that my heart bleeds when I think of your temptations and dangers, and that I cease not to pray with tears that you may be delivered. Nor do I condemn always the persons when I condemn the thing. I will not boast of superior courage, but it is not my fault if I am not more frequently in danger. I am not far from the shot of the enemy, Secure today, I do not know what shall be tomorrow. I am prepared for every event, and I hope that God will give me grace to glorify him with my blood as well as with my tongue and pen. I shall lay down my life with no more sadness than I now write down these words. And the problem that Calvin was addressing there, people who believed but were afraid to come forward with their profession of faith, is something that, has never really gone away. It's something that we see in John 12, something that Calvin was dealing with at the time of the Reformation, something that we deal with today. Now, for those of you who have been around a while and listened to my preaching, you may have heard me tell this story, but it's worth telling, and so I'll tell it again. There was a story about this young boy who uh, was getting ready to, uh, to go to a camp, and it wasn't a, a Christian camp, but the boy was a Christian, and he was worried that he would be made fun of by the other boys at the camp for being a Christian. And so he asked his pastor to pray for him. And his pastor said that he would. And a week later, the pastor saw the boy and he said, well, how did it go? Did the other boys make fun of you? And uh, he said, did they make fun of you for being a Christian? And the little boy said, well, no, I don't think they even found out. And uh, you see, that's, that's the problem that we're dealing with here. Obviously, it's a little bit Small, perhaps, when we think about a kid at a church camp, but but these can be really big, really uh, momentous issues that can confront a believer for making an open profession of Christ. And that's what we encounter here in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, as we look at John, chapter 12, verses 37 through 40 this morning. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles, we'll begin reading in John, chapter 12, verse 37. John writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word which I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now, as we consider these verses at the end of chapter 12 this morning, we'll do so under three main headings. First, the failure to believe, that's verses 37 to 41. Second, the failure to confess, that's verses 42 and 43. And then thirdly, believe to escape the darkness. So we have the failure to believe, the failure to confess, believe to escape the darkness. So first of all, the failure to believe. John tells us there in verse 37 that despite seeing so many miracles performed by Jesus, the Jews were not believing in him. And we need to understand from this that seeing is not believing. Some or perhaps many people will say that seeing is believing. They may tell you that if they had been present on earth and had seen the miracles that Jesus had done, as recorded in the Gospels, then they would believe in Christ. What John tells us here actually suggests otherwise, doesn't it? These people saw the miracles of Jesus or at the very least for those who were not present when the miracles were performed they understood clearly from those whom they trusted that Jesus actually had performed the miracles. They they couldn't deny that the miraculous things were taking place through the ministry of Jesus. They knew they had but still they did not believe. Now seeing is not believing. Now in some cases, seeing a miracle might have been the means by which belief was aided, but we must never blindly suppose that seeing a miracle performed or seeing clear evidence of the miraculous automatically brought faith like a, like a mathematical equation. I feel like that's been a theme today, the theme of math, right? This, to say that a, a miracle plus my seeing the miracle equals me having faith. It didn't work like that when Jesus was on the earth in the first century. It doesn't work like that today. And now we might ask, why is this? And the short answer is the hardness of men's hearts. Men and women, being sinners, love sin. They love darkness. They don't want the truth to be true, and so they come up with whatever excuses they can in order to reject the truth. We find in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 that this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And then things go downhill from there. Once this kind of sinful behavior sets in, refusal to come to the light for fear that evil will be exposed, the Lord then often will punish sin with further sin. Such people who refuse to come to the light have freely chosen their sin and freely rejected the truth. They have done so of their own accord with no one twisting their arms into it. And then the Lord often gives them over to other sins. And they go further into their sins and then become hardened in their sin. And thus it is in Romans 1, as Paul described the, the sinful downgrade and degradation of mankind, that we find that threefold repetition, Romans 124, 126, and 128, of how God gave them over to their sins. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Then verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women, exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Then verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. They chose to sin, and God let them have their sin. God gave them over to their sin. They went deeper and deeper, and their hearts become, became hardened in their sin. And the same thing can happen in regard to the sin of unbelief. Paul, there in Romans 1, is specifically dealing with sexual sin and, uh, and idolatry. And, and then at the end of the chapter, he, he expands the list, and it includes a whole lot. But nevertheless, this can happen here with regard to this sin of unbelief, which is what John is dealing with. And what John tells us here, by means of drawing on Isaiah the prophet is that this is exactly what was happening to these Jews here. He draws first on Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, Isaiah 53, you may recall, is the, the famous suffering servant chapter in Isaiah that prophesies the, the suffering of Christ on the cross and the atonement which came from his death. And what John is telling us here is that the unbelief, of the Jews was the fulfillment of what was prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah had prophesied the, the coming of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ the Lord, and he had also prophesied there in Isaiah 53.1 that the message of Christ would not be believed. Lord, who has believed our report? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is no one, at least no one, comparatively speaking. And this is the very thing that John already told us back in John chapter 1 in his prologue to the gospel. He told us there in John 1.11 that he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. It says here in verse 37, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. It's the same thing. He's telling us the same thing. Chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 37. It's the same thing. But... As John continues, he makes clear that this is not simply a case of unbelief, but that there was actually a judicial hardening of the people's hearts, that the Jews had been given over to their unbelief by the Lord himself. Look at, look at verses 39 and 40. He says, For this uh, reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. John says, for this reason, they could not believe. Why could they not believe? Well, we might say, as someone else has said, that they could not because they would not. It wasn't that in their heart of hearts they really did want to believe in Jesus, but God just would not permit them. That was not the case. Rather, they could not because they would not. They had no will to believe, no desire to believe. And that then, I think, pushes the question back further. Why? Why did they have no will to believe? Why were their wills so set against believing in the Messiah who was sent to them? It was because their hearts were hardened. And then to make that point, John quotes from, uh, it's a loose quote from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, that passage that our brother Sam read for us. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. The people could not believe because they would not believe, and they would not believe because their eyes had been blinded and their hearts had been hardened. And now we might ask the the identity of the hardener, right? John, is, uh, John says he has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. Who's who's the he who blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts? It's the Lord. And specifically, notice in the context that the he is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God. Look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Again, we have this, this pronoun, the him. Without skipping a beat, John continues into verse 42. and he, uh, The him in verse 42 is obviously the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He tells us there in verse 41 that Isaiah saw his glory. Whose glory? The glory of the Son of God. In other words, when Isaiah says in Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Son of God. And indeed, this happens often, if not always, when we, when we see the, the appearance of God in the Old Testament times. It seems that it was, in fact, the pre-incarnate Son of God who appeared. When the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18 and spoke to Abraham about the destruction of Sodom. Or when the angel wrestled with Jacob and Jacob says, I have seen God face to face yet my life has been preserved. Or when the angel of the Lord appeared to the people of Israel in the opening verses of Judges chapter 2, and yet the angel of the Lord says, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. It becomes clear that this is not just, not just any angel. This is actually the Lord speaking. And indeed, the, the Son of God is explicitly called the angel or the messenger of the covenant in Malachi 3.1. So all of this to say, it should not strike us as odd that when Isaiah sees the Lord in this vision in Isaiah 6, that it was the pre-incarnate Son of God whom he saw. And then John says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And what this means then is that the Son of God is the one who is behind this judicial hardening of the people. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. And indeed, if we if we look at the, at the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus, his ministry did have a hardening effect on many. They were confronted with the truth. They were called to believe the truth. But stubbornly, they resisted it. And therefore, were given over to their unbelief. And this seems to have been the case both in regard to the, the teachings of Jesus and in regard to the miracles of Jesus. And so in regard to his teaching, he says to his disciples... Mark 4, 11 and 12, he, he says, he's contrasting the, the inner group of the disciples with the, the broader group of the hearers. He says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. Then he quotes from Isaiah 6, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he says in John nine thirty nine, for judgment I came into the world, so that those Who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And even in regard to the the miracles, what we've seen here in the Gospel of John is the striking fact that so many of the, the Jews and their leaders had seen the miracles of Jesus, or at least had heard credible reports of those miracles, and yet they were hardened, extremely hardened, such that they desired to kill Jesus and attempted to kill Jesus and finally did succeed in crucifying Jesus Christ. And what this means is that unbelief can, in the providence of God, be very hardening. In other words, if you hear the truth as it is in Jesus, and you turn away from it, you're on dangerous ground. And the reason is is that God may judicially give you over to your unbelief. you choose to reject the gospel, God may allow you to continue to reject the gospel And then the result is you become hardened in unbelief. Now the good news of the gospel that God sent Jesus Christ into the world to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again three days later is a message that is of grace from beginning to end. And what this means is that God is under no obligation to let anyone hear the gospel. But in His grace, He sends this good news into the world. And what this means is that we better not take that for granted. God wasn't under any obligation to send it to us the first time. He's certainly under no obligation to send it to us again. And if there is a next time, and we've turned away from it once before, our heart may be hardened. And what this means is that the time to repent and believe is now. The time to continue repenting and continue believing is now. And I should also point out here that we as the believing community and those who identify with us, our, our children, though they're not baptized believers, but yet they, they hear the gospel and we, we hope and pray that they will become believers, we as the believing community stand, I think, in a relatively greater danger of being hardened in this way than those who are on the outside. These Jews of whom John speaks were The visible, professing church of their day, we might say. Or if you're uncomfortable with that terminology, they were the closest thing analogous to the visible, professing church of their day. As Paul says in Romans 3.2, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Or as he said in Romans 9.4, that to them belonged the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. These things had all been given to the Jews. They they knew the law. They had the law. They had there in Jerusalem in the day of Jesus the temple and the sacrifices and so on. And yet, these Jews of whom John speaks did not believe in the Christ who was sent to them by God. They were hardened in their unbelief. And if a hardness of heart and a uh, prevailing hardness of spirit of unbelief could come upon the external and visible church at that time, it can certainly happen now as well. Now, what are some ways in which this can happen? Well, it can happen when unbelief gradually and slowly, almost imperceptibly, work their way into the heart of a professing believer and then becomes greater and greater until the point when the truth of Christ is completely rejected. It can happen when young people grow up in the midst of the church and hear the gospel every Sunday. It can be easy to learn to take the gospel for granted. We can begin to think that we can repent and turn to Christ anytime we want. And then they decide upon those presuppositions to put off coming to Christ until later. Instead, they serve the world and the flesh and the devil for a season, thinking that they can come back to Christ whenever they want. Only to find that later on they cannot come to Christ because they will not come to Christ. They have no more desire to come to Christ. Whatever religious sensitivity they may have had at one time has been lost. They don't believe in Christ and they don't want to and they don't care anymore. Or if they do care, the only thing they care about is being hostile to Christ. This is the danger of this kind of judicial hardening. And I think that we, as, especially as the professing visible church, have to be on guard against this. And what's striking is that this was exactly the point that the writer to the Hebrews was making to them when he says in chapter 3, verses 12 and following, take care, brethren, that there be not in any one of you. He's calling them brethren. He says, take care that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is is still called today, so that no one of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm till the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses And with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The point that the writer to the Hebrews is making, the point that I am making, is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because if you harden your heart, if you reject the gospel, you might be done for good. God may give you over to that so that you cannot believe because you will not believe. If you've never yet trusted in Christ, don't harden your heart today. If you have professed Christ, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't let unbelief gain a foothold. Keep looking to the scriptures. I know that belief is hard. Sometimes it's hard for me. But we've got to keep looking to the scriptures. We've got to keep praying. We've got to keep crying out to God for the gift of faith. The prayer of that father who said, I believe, help my unbelief, is a prayer that God answers. The prayer of the disciples when they said, Lord, increase our faith, is a prayer that God answers. We have to stay close to Christ's church where the means of grace are, where the word of God is preached, and where baptism and the Lord's Supper are administered because this is the normal way in which God works. In the midst of the communion of saints, through the proclamation of the Bible, through the waters of baptism, through the tokens of the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, this is the normal way that God strengthens us, that God helps us persevere in the faith so that this evil heart of unbelief does not grow up within us. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And this brings us to our second point for this morning, which is the failure to confess. We've seen time and again how John shows us the divisions that were taking place among the Jews concerning Jesus. And he does so here again in this passage. By and large, most of the Jews were fitting into the category of verses 37 through 41. They were rejecting Jesus even though they had seen so many miracles. But John gives us a report concerning the minority in verses 41 and 42. He says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now these men described here were men who saw what Jesus was doing. They were men who heard what Jesus was teaching, and they believed that he was the Christ. They they see what he's doing, they hear what he's teaching, and they're like, yep, this this is it. This is the Messiah sent for us. But... They kept their belief quiet. John says they were not confessing him. Why? Well, it's because of fear. Fear of man, to be specific. They were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. So it was one part fear, one part love, right? For they loved, what did they love? The approval of men rather than the approval of God. So they feared the wrong thing and they loved the wrong thing and it kept them from confessing Jesus Christ. These men feared that they would be put out of the synagogue. In other words, they feared that they would be excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue. And John had already told us back in chapter 9, verse 22, that the Jews had already decided that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so this fear of being excommunicated from the synagogue was no idle fear. This was, this was very real. They had already said, if anybody... Uh, confesses Jesus is the Christ he's out and they were afraid of this they feared it and they loved the approval of men they loved to receive glory from men and they loved that more than what they should have actually loved which was the approval of God now in our context here here in America I'm not sure that there is anything that is quite comparable to being excommunicated from the synagogue in first century Judea. Being excommunicated from church would probably be about the closest thing, but it would be like being excommunicated from a church in a culture and society where everybody went to church and all of those churches were linked together, kind of like a a one denomination society, everybody's involved, the culture is heavily steeped in the church, and so on. Excommunication from the synagogue would in a way, put you on the outs with everybody in your social network, at least with most people in your social network. In our context, on the other hand, if you get excommunicated from one church, surely there is another church of some type that will take you in with few or no questions asked. And also, in our context, being excommunicated from the church might actually gain you some sympathy out in the broader culture. They're like, the church doesn't like you? Great, the church doesn't like us either. We'll gladly welcome you with open arms into our secular society and culture. This uh, would not, obviously, have been the case with someone who was excommunicated from the synagogue in first century Palestine there would have been enormous cultural and religious stigma attached to this. Stigma that is probably larger than anything any of us can imagine here in our context. And so the fear of the stigma and the sacrifice of the approval of their friends and neighbors, synagogue officials and so on, was was too much for these men, these leaders of the Jews who had believed in Jesus. They wanted the... Approval of men and not the scorn of men. And so they were therefore not willing to confess their faith in Jesus before men. They kept it secret. Now this is a problem, isn't it? Because confession of Christ is a pivotal component of saving faith. We read those words together, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth... Jesus as Lord. There's, a, there's something public coming openly about this. Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And Jesus himself talk, talked about this. Matthew ten thirty two and 33, Whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. He says in Luke 9, 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Open confession of Christ is worthy of praise. The denial of Christ or even the failure to confess by reason of shame will bring denial and shame upon the head of the one who denies and is ashamed. Now, obviously, I think we need to, we need to be sensitive to sensitive. In that, you know, if someone becomes a Christian in a country like Saudi Arabia, they're going to have to take certain precautions. They don't, they don't just put Christian as a bumper sticker on their car, right? We, we understand there's, there's various levels of confession that are appropriate for, for various contexts. But nevertheless, those who believe in Christ are called to confess him. And what stands out here as a warning to us is that if you love the praise of man, if you love to receive approval from other people, if that's what we're after, this is going to stand in our way as far as our following of Christ is concerned. If our main goal is to earn the praise or approval of mankind, we're not going to get it by following after Christ. In the main, you're not going to be the darling of social media or the darling of the news networks, the darling of Hollywood and the cultural elites if your main goal is to receive praise from God. If your main goal is to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, from Jesus on the day of judgment, and you actually live from day to day like that is your main goal, then that's going to set you at odds with a large swath of society. And if you want praise from that large swath of society that's going to set you at odds seeking the glory and approval of God. John Sott said it well years ago when he said, either we are unfaithful in order to be popular or we are willing to be unpopular in our determination to be faithful. I very much doubt if it is possible to be both faithful and popular at the same time. I fear we have to choose. And this is something that we need to be mindful of. I think, especially given the cultural situation in which we find ourselves today, given the societal trends all around us, sexual deviancy, various kinds of wickedness that are becoming increasingly normalized and so on, it can make you feel like you stick out like a sore thumb if you don't just go along and give approval to the latest things that the culture happens to find acceptable. The approval of men is dependent on your approval of them. And if you don't approve of wickedness in which they are involved, if you don't pledge yourself to be an ally of wickedness, they're not going to approve of you. And this brings us to something which we need to observe that in a way makes our situation perhaps even more complicated than what these Jews were facing in the first century. And this is the fact that coupled with an open confession of the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior we must be obedient and in conformity to all that he has taught us. And obedience to the teachings of Jesus is going to make us stick out more and draw the wrath of our culture more than it would for these Jews in first century Judea. The moral code taught by Jesus obviously ran contrary to the hypocritical practice of the Pharisees. But in general, it would have been in broad agreement with the teaching of the Pharisees, right? Jesus could even say to his disciples, as he did in Matthew 23, 2 and 3, "...the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them." In other words, Jesus is saying that, by and large, yeah, the Pharisees' teaching is, is orthodox and true. Do what they, do what they say, because what they say is good, Don't do what they do because what they do is bad. The point is is that there's a a lot of overlap between the morality that was taught by Jesus and the morality which the Pharisees taught. The confession of Jesus would get his followers into trouble, but following his teachings, maybe not so much in in their context. For those of you who think in visual categories, just picture the Venn diagram, right? Those Those two circles that overlap. If you've got the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Pharisees, there's going to be a lot of overlap. But fast forward 2,000 years, American culture, teaching of Jesus, teaching of our culture, wow, not so much overlap, right? You You see the point. And the area of overlap shared by the two circles is considerably less. And so for us, what that means is that the confession of Jesus and our obedience to all that he taught us, both the confession and our obedience to him, can get us into trouble and cost us the approval of men. Whereas for these people, if they obeyed Jesus, it probably wouldn't cause them too much trouble. If they confessed him, it would. But for us, both can get us into trouble. Maybe the company wants you to fly the rainbow flag or something like that. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. I can't do that. And they say, well, yeah, look at at all these other Christians, though. They claim the name of Christ. They're joining in just fine. What's your problem? You see, our situation requires... Not simply a confession of the name of Jesus Christ, but also a resolute spirit not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. A resolute spirit to observe all that Christ has commanded us. There are plenty of people, so-called progressive Christians, for example, who are willing to confess the name of Jesus, perhaps claim him as the Messiah and Lord, and at the same time march in lockstep with wickedness and reject the teaching of Jesus and his apostles Conform themselves to the world, and yet somehow try to claim Jesus as their example for doing so. And so years years ago, I heard uh, I heard someone uh, trying to make uh, I guess an argument for for feminism or something. And and what she said was, well, that Jesus in his day was a radical feminist. Well, now Jesus in his day might have loved women and shown they were valued by God in a way that their culture did not, but. <laughs> You don't, you don't just take Jesus elevating women to the status that God designed them for and say, okay, Jesus equals radical first-century feminism. That equals radical 21st-century feminism. It's not a straight line. The argument does not work. If we would be faithful to Christ, we must confess his name, confess him as the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, and then coupled with that verbal confession, there must be an accompanying commitment to obeying him. Now that we're saved by our obedience, certainly not. But if we truly love Christ, we will truly obey him. And if we love him, we will seek the approval of Christ, we'll seek the approval of his father, and not the approval of man. It was said by Solomon that the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. It's also true that the desire for approval from man is a snare. And I dare say that those who find themselves affected with this desire for the approval of man, they find themselves wandering from the faith and piercing themselves with many griefs, even as those who love for money and long for it. And in the end, we will find that this was a, a bad bargain. And it's a, this type of bargain, at least broadly speaking, that, again, the writer of the Hebrews warns about in Hebrews 12:15 and following. He says, see that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness uh, springing up causes trouble. And by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he rejected it, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. That warning there against following the pathway of Esau was a warning against immorality and godlessness. And valuing the approval of men over the approval that comes from God is certainly a form of godlessness. And those who go down that road will find in due time that they have chosen poorly. Those who do that will find that they have traded a birthright for for what? A bowl of stew? A bowl of porridge? That's a bad trade. Sure, being hungry is a miserable experience, just like might be miserable being on the wrong side of public opinion and suffering reproach for the name of Christ. But we can look back at Esau and see just how foolish and fleshly he was to trade his birthright for a meal when he was really hungry. And when the blessing was gone, it was gone. Couldn't get it back, though he sought for it with tears. We can see the folly in that. And so let's all take notice that it is just as foolish to value the approval of men the value of the applause of a, a warped and crooked generation rather than the approval that comes from God. That also is a bad bargain. So we should be willing to, to suffer whatever insults and hardships come upon us for confessing Christ's name. I know that's not pleasant. I don't take joy in that. But nevertheless, we must confess Christ's name, whatever may come upon us, and also hold fast to his teaching knowing that we have an inheritance that will never fade away. We find it in Hebrews thirteen, thirteen and 14. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. That has to be the perspective, right? Recognizing we have no enduring city here. We're passing through. We're seeking the city which is to come. And therefore, on the way there, we have to go to Christ outside the camp. We have to bear the reproach which he shares. And in order to seek that city which is to come, we have to believe in Christ in order to escape the darkness, which is our third point for this morning and uh, much more shortly here on point number three. But in verses 44 through 50, we see uh, Jesus crying out there and proclaiming the way of salvation. The way of salvation is by faith, through trusting Christ We see his words once again here, as we've often seen in the Gospel of John, this close connection between Christ and the Father, that he truly is one with the Father. He says in verse 44, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. We see there in verse 45 that those who see Christ see the Father. And we see the reason for which Christ has come, that he has come as a light into the world, verse 46. He's come to save the world, verse 47. That was the purpose of his coming. At the, at the, uh, the first coming was not to judge, but to save. But even though that was the purpose, was to save the world. Christ's saving work implicitly entails judgment, because there will be there were those who reject him, who did not receive his sayings, and Jesus says that they will be judged on the last day by the word which Christ has spoken the word which they have rejected. And that word which they have rejected is not simply the word of the Son of God, it is a word which he has spoken in obedience to God the Father. Now this is not to suggest that the Son is inferior to the Father, but rather it is to affirm that the Son spoke those things which were given him to speak as a part of the covenant of grace. Part of the plan of salvation agreed upon by the three persons of the Holy Trinity was that the Son would speak such things as he did in fact speak. It was agreed that the Father would send the Son, that the Son would become a man, and be obedient to the Father in all things, and that he would speak and say such things as were necessary for the plan of salvation to be proclaimed and enacted. And those words which Jesus speaks according to the commandment of the Father bring eternal life to all who believe. He says in verse 50, I know that his commandment is eternal life, Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Christ has come as light into the world, so that all who believe in him will not walk in darkness. And so, friend, come to Christ today in faith. This is what we've been saying. Don't harden your heart in unbelief. Don't reject Christ's words. Don't hold back and think uh, that you can be... Faithful and believe in Christ and yet fail to confess Him openly. You can't. You must believe. You must confess Him before men. Christ is your only hope. Christ is your only light. Christ is the only way to God the Father, and His words will judge you if you reject them. But what He offers you in the Gospel is absolutely wonderful. He is light, and He brings you out of darkness into His light. Through him, we leave behind the darkness of our sins because we've been given new life and remade in him. Through Christ, we leave behind the darkness of our guilt because in him our sins, all of them, are forgiven. Through Christ, we leave behind the darkness of our ignorance because through him we come to know God. Indeed, Jesus has come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes will not remain in darkness. So praise be to God that we are not left in the darkness of our sin and guilt and ignorance, but that we are brought out of that darkness by the grace and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's come out of the darkness by believing in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we we know that living in the world, a world that is hostile to you, is difficult. It's trying for us. There's so much of us that wants to be conformed to the world. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would love Christ, that we would persevere with an eternal perspective, that we would recognize that we are seeking not a city here, but the city which is to come, that as such we would believe upon Christ, that we would confess his name, that we would go to him outside the camp bearing whatever shame, whatever reproach, this world may want to heap upon us. We ask that you would strengthen us because we know that we're too weak for this in ourselves. We pray that you'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen.